Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Warning, the following podcast has some foul language. You may wish to earmuff the impressionable. Hello, it's the Saturday show, making this Saturday. No, wait a minute, that probably works the other way. Whatever day it is, it's the best of the week, and this week we have a best of spiel. And then I'm not going to give you an interview from the past. I'll give you one of my earliest or, let us say, most celebrated early reports, 20 years old. So on Monday, I heard a statistic about how well Tesla was doing with its EVs, its electric vehicles, and it was an impressive number. But I generally think that we fail to understand just how far the electric vehicle has to travel before it overtakes the old internal combustion engine. So I did a spiel on trends being mistaken for just the facts that are governing our experience as opposed to what will one day govern our experience. And that'll be up first. And then I will talk about Cracker Jack and how much money Cracker Jack has made over the years. It is opening day this week, and we will celebrate by celebrating a caramel peanut and popcorn confection, peanuts being at a much, much lower ratio than the popcorn. Enjoy the spiel. I'll be back to give you an intro for Cracker Jack. And now the spiel. Here's a trend I've noticed. The direction of the trend is all that gets noticed. The trend all and be all. So you might hear about a notable quarter for electric vehicles. Despite supply chain issues, Tesla hit a new sales record by delivering 310,000 vehicles in just the first quarter. According to a statement released Saturday, the electric vehicle maker showed a 68% increase in manufacturing compared to the same time last year. And there were no claims about the total number of cars on the road that are electric, but just to hear that one number, you can kind of close your eyes and recall a stat you've probably heard before that by, I don't know, 2030, 2050, the estimates are that half or more than half of the cars on the road will be electric, or maybe the stat is conjured in your mind. You've heard it. You know you've heard it. That California or General Motors pledges an entirely electric fleet or mostly electric fleet by, again, pick a year. The year might change, the entity might change, but the trend doesn't change. The trend says what the news is saying, what almost all of us absorb is that we're going to be electric sooner than we may know. And this trend, which means that which will be, begins to substitute in our imagination for that which is. 
and you probably don't have an electric car. And even if you do, you're out on the road today, you looked around you, you know most of the other cars aren't electric. But you know where the trend is, and you begin to think of the future as here and here as electric. So let's talk numbers. What if they told you the numbers of cars on the road right now that aren't electric? All right, I'll give you this to start off. How many cars are on American roads? 289.5 million vehicles on American roads. And of those 289.5 million vehicles, 287 need gas to move. So whenever you hear people confidently or maybe even angrily say, why are we still drilling? Or why aren't we installing charging stations on every corner instead of gas stations? They aren't reflecting the reality because the reality is 97.5% of the cars are internal combustion engine dependable. Even if hybrid, they need the gas to go. This isn't as exciting as what will be, but that's where we are right now. I see this trend of focusing or over-focusing on trends a lot in electoral politics, where the emerging trend of a minority-majority country has been conflated with the current state of the electorate. This was very pronounced in the 2018 Texas Senate election, where, let's take a PBS report, it could stand in for many reports that didn't get anything wrong, but it reported how the state's demographics were changing in a way that threatened the Texas Republican hold on power. Please welcome Congressman Beto O'Rourke. He is gaining national attention and appealing to diverse groups in a state with a growing population of non-white voters. Is this and the race that could turn a red state blue? Nothing wrong with those facts, qua facts. The statement of fact was accompanied by a graphic showing the share of the white population of Texas shrinking and the share of black and Latino population growing. White goes down from 54% in 2010 to 42% in 2017, the year before that report aired. Take this report from AJ Plus, once again emphasizing Texas's share of the Latino population. Democrats' hopeful outlook is all because of the changing of Texas demographics. It's the uh, Latino populations around the state and that this is a population that will rise, awaken, and seize its political power. But Ted Cruz beat Beto O'Rourke by 215,000 votes. It was kind of close. 2.3% O'Rourke lost to Cruz by. O'Rourke came closer than any Democrat had in over 20 years in winning any statewide election. Of course, O'Rourke also outraised Cruz enormously, 80 million to 46 million, and faced in Cruz an enormously unpopular incumbent. There were a lot of reasons for Cruz's victory. One odd fact was that while O'Rourke was said to benefit from this rise in Latino voters, Ted Cruz was the Latino in the race, Beto O'Rourke was not. But I think a big reason why many people were surprised or more disappointed than they should have been by the result was that maybe people had been paying attention to left or slightly left leaning election prognosticators who said that what is to come is now. They bet the come. They took the trend as a reality when the trend is the directional increase, but the numbers are the reality. So that shrinking to 42% of Texans who are white and that growing, arising, awakening, seizing portion of the population that identifies as Latino, the exit poll showed that 56% of Texans who cast their vote in that election were white, 12% black, 36% Latino. And that wasn't a surprise. And that wasn't suppression. And that wasn't 
blacks and Latinos not voting in equal proportions as white. I mean, it happened for a few reasons. One is that the statistics are a little bit affected by the fact that Latino is an ethnicity, not a race. So many Latinos do identify as white. Take Ted Cruz, for example. Another factor is that statements about the rise in Latinos in the population, while true, usually don't state that Latinos are less eligible to vote either because of citizenship status or age. But a big, big reason why people might have been surprised or why you might be surprised to think that, wait, why did 56% of the voters, why are they white when only 42% of the state is white? Is that the trend, the direction of the change about to occur came to stand in for the facts of what were already here? In politics, there is a debate about demographic change. And sometimes it gets called wish casting to assume that demographic change that will occur has occurred. And that will do all the work of winning elections. I see this as a function mostly of psychology. People are attracted to new shiny things. And an emergent majority-minority makeup is different from what we've always known. Some people might be attracted to that, hopefully. Some people might be distressed by that. But it's a lot easier for people to focus on the fact that we will someday be a majority-minority country than the fact that we're not that close from having it happen. Not this election, not next election, not the next few elections. We're going to have enough elections that whites dominate, that unless Democrats do something different other than be really, really, really appealing to non-whites, Democrats are going to lose. We're about as close to that as the letters EV, just meaning car. You know, where most cars are EVs. We won't call them EVs. We might call the old cars ICEs. I don't know. Tonight... The NCAA championship will occur. Actually, they already occurred. The NCAA women's championship was won by South Carolina last night. Tonight could be won by North Carolina or Kansas on the men's side. And women's basketball is rising in popularity. That seems true. I've looked at the facts. I've looked at the trend lines. It's also true that the NCAA makes so much less money from the women's tournament than the men's. And it seems like they're under monetizing the tournament. I read a big report about that. But that said, I think this is an instance where news about growth and trends and the legitimate Title IX demands for equal treatment between men and women have confused some people about the absolute numbers. A couple of weeks ago, ESPN put out a press release touting how well their broadcasts of the women's games were going. One second round game did really well. UConn versus University of Central Florida garnered 1.13 million viewers. And ESPN said the second round was up, up 25%, and they were averaging 474,000 viewers a game. On the men's side, the most watched second round game, Duke versus Michigan State, was watched by 11 million viewers. And men's first and second round games on Turner Sports and CBS were averaging 9.12 million viewers. I couldn't find just a second round stat. But, you know, 20 times as many people were watching games from the equivalent round. If you just view the best game, nine times as many people. Tonight in the finals, there won't be 10 times as many viewers as there were in the women's finals, but it'll be, you know, some large multiple. If you're focusing on the trends in popularity in the women's game, the women's game is doing pretty nicely. If you deal with absolute numbers, with the men's game as a baseline, Well, let's be positive and say the women's game has much room for growth. 
all of the cases I've cited from basketball to politics to EVs, they're all different and conceptions or misconceptions, they're not entirely twisted around the slope of the trend. There are many reasons why many people are under impressions that I think might lead them to not realize that 97.5% of cars on the road need the old gasoline. But in general, I do think trend lines are fine, but absolutes best compute. And just like we state margin of error with polling or how we put the rise in crime in the context of historical highs in the 90s, that's instructive. I say so too should we in the media strive to clarify what the current bottom line numbers are, do that along with the forecasts of what's to come. Or else by 2035, experts say that the majority of new trend stories will be almost all half-truths. In 2001, when this report first aired, the host of uh, the show who introduced it, I found the old script, would have said something like this. It's all because of a song written in 1908 by a lyricist who had never seen a baseball game. But when Jack Norworth saw a subway ad for baseball at the polo grounds, the lyrics for Take Me Out to the Ball Game hit him with the speed of a Christy Mathewson fastball. And that reference to Cracker Jack translated to free advertising, the likes of which America has not seen before or since. How much is that worth to parent company Frito-Lay? Or, then I was, producer at large, Mike Pesca, found out. Enjoy this piece 20 plus years since it originally aired. The Yankees beat the Texas Rangers 9-7 at the stadium Wednesday night. The game featured two innings of stellar relief from Mariano Rivera, Tino Martinez's 24th home run of the season, and 41,714 people simultaneously standing and invoking a brand name consumer non-durable. On Wednesday night, as on most nights throughout the summer, thousands of Americans stood up and sang the word Cracker Jack. Last year, over 72 million customers saw a Major League Baseball game, and at a certain juncture in each, they were all invited to participate in the most entrenched product placement in American history. Cracker Jacks! Cracker Jacks! It is technically Cracker Jack, not Cracker Jacks, on the box and in the song lyrics. Pluralized or not, Cracker Jack has achieved a singular place in the American psyche, if not consciousness. So, uh, what do you eat when you come to the ballpark? Of course you gotta have a hot dog, and you always eat Cracker Jacks. And why? Well, because they're just the best. Why? It was embedded in your mind that you had to eat hot dogs and Cracker Jacks at least. Why? Because they told you to do it, so you just do it. It just fits. I'm gonna keep saying why until you give me the right answer. Why? Okay, say the answer. Sing Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Take me out to the ball game. Wait, we'll have some Cracker Jacks. Yeah, at the old ball game. Yeah. Peter Berniska and Zanetta Stewart knew that Cracker Jack and baseball went together because the song lyric plants the association in the mind. But that doesn't always lead to direct action. A stadium vendor told me that sales spike in the second and are almost dead by the seventh inning stretch. 
This was borne out by a visit to the concession stand right after Take Me Out to the Ball Game. See right now you're folding. Can you tell me what kind of box you're folding up? Cracker Jack box. And is that because you're you're sold out? No. Due to huge demand? No. Do you often sell out of Cracker Jacks? No. Do you often sell out of anything? Yes. What do you sell out of? Peanuts. So how much is this mention worth to Cracker Jack? Let's say Cracker Jack wasn't in the song. Let's say instead that there was a Cracker Jack ad on the outfield wall of every major league park. According to Scott McDuffie, vice president of out-of-home media for Zenith Media, those types of ads cost a quarter of a million dollars each. It's cheaper to advertise in the minors, but there are 160 minor league stadiums. Conservatively, the price to replace the lyric with outdoor advertising in professional baseball stadiums would be $25 million. Cracker Jack's total sales last year were around $40 million. Does this mean that without baseball, there would be no Cracker Jack? Or at least no Cracker Jack as we know it? They may have had some difficulties trying to, to make Cracker Jack contemporary. Paul Lucas is the author of Inconspicuous Consumption, an obsessive look at the stuff we take for granted. He recalls Cracker Jack's attempts to tweak its brand image through television commercials in the 70s. I think the lyric of the jingle went something like, what do you call a kid who can dive like that? You call that kid a Cracker Jack. You call that kid a Cracker Jack. You remember, Jack. yeah. And, and, then, and then the tagline at the end was, when you're really good, they call you Cracker Jack. And in fact, no, they don't. They stopped calling you Cracker Jack during the Hoover administration. And that's one of the reasons why Cracker Jack will remain not only caramel-covered, but sepia-tinged. Paul Lucas. With snacks, which are, are sort of in the realm of pop culture when it, when it comes to consumer products, the brand image is at least as important as the product itself. And, and the, the image and the look they've gone for with this particular brand is one of nostalgia, and, and I do think that uh, a lot of it has to do with the song. It's, it's sort of, uh, in some ways, it's great free advertising, but it may also be a bit of a straitjacket. But Cracker Jack does have one other thing going for it. Yankee Stadium groundskeeper Javon Trehearn has cleaned up hundreds of pounds of Cracker Jack. How long have you been working at Yankee Stadium? Um, ten years. Ten years. Ten years. How many Cracker Jack prizes have you found on the ground? None. They don't never throw away the prize. They always keep the prizes. If Hallmark had gotten in on the ground floor of the writing of Happy Birthday, or if Francis Scott Key could have somehow known to mention, say, Woolite, we'd have another contender for most effective product placement ever. But if Francis Scott Key had been that smart, we'd call him Cracker Jack. Take me out to the ball game. Take me out to the crowd. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Corey Wara and Joel Patterson. Michelle Pesca is, of course, the Cracker Jack production chief of Peachfish Productions. Um, Peru, definitely do Peru. I'll see you. It's one, two, three strikes around.